weird, humorous, and eclectic mix of people who've decided to follow Jesus Christ. It's really nice outside. But so glad you're here. Um, we did want to mention uh, this week, don't forget about the commun- communion cups in the back if you need communion cups. And there's always the communication card in, in front of you in the seats. But there's also that little square code there. I know that some of you that are my age and older may not understand what that is. Um, but that is a QR code, and uh, Troy was telling me that actually stands for quick response, and that's what it stands for. So it's a QR code, and you hold your camera up. Uh, you know the camera. It's the thing we used to call a cell phone, but now it's a camera. Uh, you hold your camera up there, a little yellow thing lights up, and you can touch that, and you can get, all, get to all kinds of wondrous things on your phone. Um, but, uh, you know, I I forget. when I When I was in college, I didn't do anything with computers, but the computer took up the size of the room that we're in so that so i'm not uh, technically advanced i'm a little challenged but uh, this morning uh we don't want to be challenged we want to worship the lord yes, this morning so let's yes. let's stand and let's get ready to worship second corinthians six sixteen and 18 says god said i will dwell among them and walk among them and i will be their god and they shall be my people mm. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I 
great father. Amen. Oh, so sing for joy, you righteous ones, because praise is becoming to the upright. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all of the lights, all the earth, fear the Lord, and all the inhabitants of the world stand
68, verses 4 through 5 say, Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Exalt him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and be jubilant before him. A father of the fatherless, a judge for the widows, is God in his holy Thank you. 
to turn that breath into praise. Whether it be through song or through living or through attitude. Lord, you've given us the gift of life. Forgive us when we don't use that gift for your glory. You are the giver of all things, the maker of all things. And why you would look upon me beyond my ability to imagine. Yet you do. Oh, may the praise, honor, and glory come back at you as we show, as we demonstrate with our words and with our life, Lord. May you be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and get your communion cups ready. As we prepare to take communion in a few moments, it's my duty to tell you that the Lord's Supper is for the people of God. It is not for everyone. It is for those and those only who have confessed their sins, who have publicly professed their faith in Christ alone for their salvation, and who remain members in good standing of a gospel-preaching church. When we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are publicly professing that our spiritual unity is with Christ as our Savior and Lord, our unity with believers in this room, our unity with believers around the invisible church around the world. It is the visible representation of God's grace to us. We're also looking to the work of Christ in our life, what he has done in the past, what he's doing in the present, and what he will do in the future. We're affirming that he's washed away all of our sins at the cross, and we're examining ourselves and confessing our sins to him. And as we partake in communion, may I just remind you, remember the gospel. Remember the grace of God. Your sins may be many, but he has covered all your sins. Your sins may be deep, but his grace is deeper. Take a moment right now and confess your sins to God silently. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But each person must examine himself, and in doing so he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the perfect sacrifice. We thank you that there is no condemnation in you and that you have saved us from our wrath, from your Father's wrath, but also from ourselves. Be with us this week as we come to you and allow us to live joyfully in the knowledge and the power of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.
Good morning, church family. We start by head, having the kids head out the back there with Miss Emmy. So, younger ones, off you go. Adult ones, back into heavy theology once again today as we take our second week in the Trinity. Uh, the first week we got together, we began this discussion by talking about the doctrine, the overarching teaching about the Trinity within Scripture. This week we're going to be focusing in on the person of God. Before we do that, though, you got a Scripture to memorize every month that we are together. Let's see how you're doing on our Scripture memory for this month. And off we go. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Okay, so some of you are getting that. This is really cool. It's a blessing, right? Imagine sending your kids off to school with that this, this coming week as they all head back. Ooh, here we go. Hey, uh, since being in ministry, um, I've often articulated how weird our experience as human beings is. And the fact that we don't think about how weird our experience as human beings is, is that we're thoroughly engrossed in the experience of being a human being. I suspect it's for the same reason that a fish probably does not contemplate water very often, or a cave cricket does not think about what darkness is. We are surrounded by the human experience to such a degree that none of this seems strange to us, though in fact it is quite bizarre. So again, today I want to ask you to engage in a little mind experiment here. I want you to pretend for just a moment like you've never encountered anything on this planet before. None of this, none of this is in your memory. Imagine you're seeing it, perceiving it for the first time. There is a creature, an animate object, and it is known as a human being. And these creatures produce tiny versions of themselves. Those tiny versions are a conglomeration of the father and the mother. The male in this particular relationship, this particular coupling, is known as a father. And this male is meant to have a particular role and function in the life of his progeny that we broadly describe as fatherhood. What a strange phenomena these bipeds engage in. Now, Christians have this narrative, this story, this overarching story about existence, and Jews have the same story to some degree. Uh, monotheists hold that God created this earth in such a way as that we would be able to learn how best to relate to him, to God. And if that's the case, that God fashioned this cosmos in such a way that we might know him more, then what does that tell us about this role of father? We often think of God as a good father, but that's not quite correct. God is not like a good father. Rather, a good God, father is like God. The question is one of primacy. God is the prime father. He is the archetype for what a father is meant to be. And humans imitate God. At least, that's what good fathers do. The difference is more than one of sequence. It's not just that God is first, but God is most and best. The whole idea, the very concept of dad came from God going, I want to train these entities how to relate to me. We're going to be speaking a lot this week about what a good father is like, but what should astonish us is that we have any idea of what good fatherhood is to begin with. For if there is no God, if there is no God in this cosmos, we would just create our expectations about what a good father is or what a good father ought to be from sort of taking an average performance survey of the population. In other words, the bar for father would be very low. 
In most households and through most of human history, men have failed to be exemplary fathers. Many have no father figure to speak of, or perhaps worse, some people have an abysmal mockery of someone in that role. Now, why is it that all of us can point to things like abuse and abandonment, selfishness, softness, disinterest, neglect, laziness, rage, and the like, and say, that's a bad dad. That is not a good father. Where did we get this idea? It seems to be sort of an innate sense, a sort of divine metric by which men are measured, a sort of father archetype. And we can learn much about this archetype, not just from dads who are successful, but we can learn a lot about this archetype from dads who are abject failures. Dads either prove to be a great illustration of our Heavenly Father, or they function as a lesson in laxity, a demonstration of disappointment, dereliction, and deficiency, and a whole lot of other D words. Our first father, our prime father, is the one we approach today, the supreme sire, the father God. Let's think about him as we begin with a word to him in prayer. Our father, mighty God, we approach you today as people who want to know you to know more of you, to understand you more, and to relate rightly to you. Father, we know that you set up this whole paradigm of family in this way in order that we might be able to understand and discern you as Father. As we dig into the topic of who you are and who the Son revealed you to be, God, I pray again that you'll help us to avoid anything that resembles blasphemy. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. I pray that your scriptures would speak to us deeply into our lives, that we might know you more. We ask that in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ today. Amen. So today we're going to start by talking about the awesome God. Secondarily, we want to talk about God as Father. And lastly, we want to talk about relating to the Father and how we relate to the Father God. Let's start with the term awesome. The term awesome has lost its primary meaning. Do you use the word awesome very often? I do, and I almost always use it in the wrong fashion. For instance, I'm at a restaurant, and I order a burger, and the burger comes out to the table with fries, and there, beneath the fries, is a glorious onion ring. What jubilation assaults me. What, what great wonder at what has, had is, what has transpired. And so I might be heard to say in my glee, awesome! But that's misusing the term. Do you know what the term awesome means? It means to inspire all. Let's make it more clear generating fear. The term Yahweh in the Hebrew means terrible or terrifying or dreadful or astonishing or to be filled with reverent wonderment. Now, whatever else the onion ring under the fries might be, it's not that. Our God is an awesome God. Before the God God as Father can be rightly understood by us, God the terrifying God the astonishing, God the wonderful and wonder worker, the awesome God must be seen for who he is. So that's why we're going to start by talking about the nature of God as we begin today. The Father is the source. I love discovering where things come from. For me, that's exhilarating. I love finding out the origin of something. I'm impressed when I can discover something new or how something came to be. This is why I'm a super big pain to be at a museum with. Because, like, if there's a description, I want to read it. And so it takes me forever to get through museums. 
I remember as a kid watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, a phenomenal piece of work. And, and I remember one day Mr. Rogers went to the factory where graham crackers were made. And as a child, I had graham crackers on the regular. And so I got to watch as he went into this facility and they opened up machines and they show you the dough rolling around and as they bake the crackers. And I was like, this is awesome. Not the correct use of the term again. There's something about encountering an origin that is cool. The more significant the effect, the more interesting, the more amazing and entertaining is the cause. Think about this when it comes to God. God the Father is the source of all that is. The whole physical cosmos was made by God. Every physical thing you encounter is his workmanship on some level. Do you like bacon? That was his design. Are you amazed by metallurgy? Are you a fan of flamingos? He did that. Are you astonished by Adams? That was his conception. He made it all. Not just the seen realm, but the unseen realm. Things that you don't perceive. The unseen realm that you don't perceive, that is part of the physical realm. Things like the quantum universe or things like mathematics. If I asked you, where does the number three live? Could you show me? No, because it's an abstract object. But he created mathematics as a way to describe all the features that are in the cosmos for us to unpack and unravel and investigate this world in which we live in. The laws of logic, the regulations for the physical, but other unseen things as well. He made a spiritual realm, a spiritual universe. The watchers, the angelic powers and majesties, even demonic powers and the spirit that is within you. Those things are created by God. He is the source. All of life is made by God. If it wriggles, if it crawls, if it swims, skitters, trots, or sits with you at the dinner table, it is part of his creation. He is the source of life. This is important for us to understand with regard to the Trinity. God the Father is the source of both Jesus and the Holy Spirit. This is the way it's described in the Scriptures. Now, please understand what I'm saying here so that you understand that I'm not blaspheming. God did not create Jesus, and God did not create the Holy Spirit. But both are described as proceeding forth from God. A way that some early Christians talked about this, just maybe to help your understanding, is uh, you know, like a star, like the sun in the center of our solar system? Okay, the sun is there, but sun rays proceed from the sun. Now, if the sun was there from all eternity, then rays were there from all eternity. And this is the way God is described. God the Father would be the equivalent of the star, and Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit are the rays going forth. It is God's presence advancing into the world. Again, Every metaphor is flawed because every metaphor is, is, not, is comparing something to something else. The only perfect metaphor is comparing something to itself. Okay. So God the Father is the source of both Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God the Father is the source of all truth. God determines what is valid. He is always right and never wrong. Do you know anybody like that? Well, God, God legitimately is like that. All that he is and all that he believes is absolutely true. God is the source of all morality and value. A virtue is literally only a virtue insofar as it is a reflection of him. And vice is only vice insofar as it is turning away from him. I said that God made all things, and some of you who are critically minded might be going, well, did he make sin? And the answer to that is, what is sin? Is it a thing? Or is it a rebellion against what is? 
is the absence of God and God's goodness. He did not create sin, but he created free will creatures who could choose. God is the source of all morality and value. His decrees are not subject to human fact checkers. Amen? But all creatures and all creation will be subject to him and his judgment. So God is the Father. He is the source. God the Father is almighty. This is the way it's described in the Apostles' Creed. Are you impressed with strength? I am. I love to see when things are strong or moving something that's big. There's something about like construction equipment, like picking up something that is super heavy and shifting it. Or have you ever seen like a crew of people where they actually move houses? Have you seen that? Like they pick up houses and carry them from one place to another. Something about like horses, like heavy horses and watching them pull like draft horses. There's just something impressive about strength. Have you considered God's strength? The Apostles' Creed describes God as almighty. I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. Almighty. Everyone say almighty. That's a mash together of two words. What are those words? All and mighty. He has all might. It's often described in Christian theology as omnipotent or as all powerful. In other words, his power is greatest. Not great, greatest. It is without limit. Now, that power should cause terror and wonder in the average person. Are you terrified? Maybe not enough. Let me give you a visual. I want you to imagine you're laying on your back. And as you look up into the sky, there dangling above your face is an aircraft carrier. You're positioned in such a way that as you look up, you're looking up the deck of that aircraft carrier as it hangs an inch above your nose. How do you feel? A little concerned, a little upset, overwhelmed by the sheer weight of what is above you. Guys, that's an aircraft carrier. That's just a little boat on a little planet surrounding, orbits a medium-sized star just outside of one of the arms of one single galaxy in the midst of the greater scope of the entire universe. Our God controls every molecule, every atom in the whole of the cosmos. Does that not inspire awe in you? Is that not terrifying when you think about such a thing? We often refer to God as glorious. Do you know what the word glorious means in its original form? Fat. Some of us are more glorious than others. <laughs> now, the idea was this. God, it's not saying that God is obese. It's saying he's weighty. He's of great weight. His name is of great weight. The value of God is of great weight and should be considered weighty. Secular philosophers, people like Socrates and Plato, described God as the unmoved mover. Think about that term, the unmoved mover. He does not change. He does not shift. He is the source of all things, and all things move by his will. The Father is the source. The Father is almighty. The Father is the Holy One. One of our elders, George Goforth, and myself were discussing the impending Trinity series this past week, and he quipped about a breakdown of the Trinity that he had once heard. The scary one, the nice one, and the spooky one. Maybe a little blasphemous, I don't know. The scary one, the nice one, and the spooky one, but there is an accuracy to this, right? And so we have to ask this question and maybe give attention to why God the Father would be considered the scary one. There's good reason. The Father is holy. He's separate. He's different than. He's otherly. 
And you and I don't fit with that category. Why? Because we're sinners. Sinful humans cannot tolerate God's presence. Or or maybe it would be more appropriate to say this. God's presence won't tolerate sinful man. This is where things start getting scary. God the Father is not just some impersonal, uncaring force in the universe. He has all power, but he is also a personal agency, and he cares deeply about rebellion against him. He could unmake every sinner with a thought. Who's a sinner? If you're not raising your hand, you're a liar, so congratulations, now you're a sinner. Isaiah is brought into God's presence in chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah. And so here's this prophet, and he's standing in the presence of God in this celestial temple with God. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. Here's what he says. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, each having six wings. With two, each covered his face, and with two, each covered his feet, and with two, each flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the whole temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, and this is Isaiah's response, Woe to me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Now, it's understood in this passage that what Isaiah saw when he perceived Yahweh, he probably did so as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai, either pre-incarnate Christ or he saw just this glorious presence of God. I think his emphasis on the train of God's robe gives us an idea of where his eyes were attempting to go. He was trying to look away from this one. He was mortified by the one in whose presence he found himself And everywhere he looked was God's robe filling the temple. His response was righteous and it is natural. I am in the presence of the almighty God. I am a dead man. In Exodus 33 verse 20, Moses asked to see God. But God's response is, no one can see my face and live. No one can see me and live. John tells us in his gospel that no one has seen the Father, that is the Father in his fullness, at any time. John chapter 1 verse 18. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says it this way. He says, he who, is, he who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality. Do you know what immortality means? He can't be killed. He's unkillable. He who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The problem is this God is terrifying and you and I are sinners and we're on the wrong side of this God. This separation, this chasm between human beings and God was driven home by the tabernacle and later the temple. You remember these from the Old Testament, right? The tabernacle is this tent that is set up and it's meant to be this place where people meet with God. Later the temple would be built and it would be kind of the permanent tabernacle or the more permanent tabernacle among the people. So if as a human being, you wanted to go meet with God, you'd go to the tabernacle, you'd go to the temple. And what would you experience as soon as you got there? Layer upon layer upon layer of separation from God. Why? 
Those layers are there to protect you, to keep you separate because you're a sinful human. And should you draw too near to God, His holiness would eradicate you. Areas of sequential nearness. The most holy place, the place most sacred in the temple or in the tabernacle was an area that only one person could go into, the high priest, and then only once a year. And that entry only happened after significant personal cleansing and fasting, repenting, and sacrifices had been made. And even at this point, when that high priest goes in, they put bells on the hems of his robe so they can hear the jingling behind the curtain and know that he's still alive and God hasn't struck him dead. And there was a rope tied at his waist. So in the instance that God struck him dead, they could draw him out because no other priest wanted to go in and get him out and risk being killed in the process. So here's the issue. How does a human being like you or I ever approach such a God? Why would he even consider us at all? Why would he even think about us? This is what we see written about in the Psalm. Psalm chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in a place, what is man that you think of him? And the son of man that you're concerned for him. Have you ever had this experience? Have you ever like looked out at the night sky or thought about the cosmos or looked at the wonderment of your, like your kids playing and thought, God, why would you even think about us? Like, why would you even consider us? Our God is an awesome God. But he's more than that. He's Father. Let's talk about God as Father. You might have noticed that I've been referencing God as Father during a significant part of today's sermon. But quite frankly, I'm getting ahead of myself because on the world stage, God has not been addressed as Father for all that long. It's a relatively short period of time, all things considered. Many in our world today, if you ask them about God, will describe God as Father. And many pray to God as Father, but that is a familiarity that does not rightly belong to everyone. Is everyone God's Father, or is He not your daddy? The discipline of comparative religions, one of my undergraduate degrees was in comparative religions. The discipline of comparative religions sought to nail down the essence of different religious views, right? So it takes all different religions and it attempts to synchronize or synthesize some of the core elements of religious belief. Now, why do many people in the comparative religions departments do that? Well, it's often a concerted effort to get past supernaturalist claims claims about things that are supernatural, and just approach religion as merely uh, something that that we bipeds do, right? It's philosophy or it's psychology. There's some element to it that human beings are drawn to, but we have to kind of distill the religion down, get rid of all the supernatural stuff, and see what is at the core of these things. Adolf von Harnack, uh, who lived in the latter part of the 1800s, early 1900s, he was one of the early promoters of what we called the social gospel, What is the social gospel? Well, it's an attempt to reject all the supernatural claims of Scripture in favor of some more generic religious sentiments, right? He felt that the gospels were trying to say something. Jesus wanted to say something, but it fell to him in order to distill it so that common people like you and I could understand it. And so he wrote a book entitled, What is Christianity? And Harnack's conclusion in this book is that all of Christianity boils down to these two things. Here they are, the two things that Harnack said Christianity was all about. Number one, The universal fatherhood of God. Everybody has God as a father. Number two, the universal brotherhood of man. Now that seems good to to most of you, probably until you think about it for more than a minute or two. If you're at all familiar with the Bible, you might recognize there's a problem here. 
Now, this creed was adopted by Unitarians. By the way, Unitarians are not Christians. Um, They do not believe in most of the central elements of Christianity, but they adopted this notion. God's everybody's father, and what Jesus was trying to say is that everyone are brothers. The only problem with this view is it isn't true. It could hardly be considered the, the center of Christian theism. It isn't even biblical. What do we mean? Does Scripture actually teach that everyone has God as a father? Turn your Bibles to John chapter 8. That'll be kind of the thrust of where we're going with this portion of the the, uh, sermon. John chapter 8. Now the scriptures teach that God created everyone and everything. So in that sense, we are all byproducts of God. We all came from God. Does that make sense to everybody? But does that make God our father by merit of the fact that he made us? Well, if everything that God made is God's son or daughter, that would mean pigs are also God's son or daughter. So are mosquitoes. Sons of God? Really? You comfortable saying that? So it's not just by merit of creation that something becomes God's child. Now, Paul says the closest thing to what Harnock taught in his speech to the Areopagus. He was speaking to a bunch of Greeks in Athens, uh, and these are people who did not know Judaism. They did not know the God of Judaism that well. And so Paul is speaking to this crowd of skeptics, and he says that... He, he says, one of your poets even says it this way, we are all his offspring. In other words, he quotes one of their poets, we're all his offspring. And what he means is, this God I'm telling you about isn't just the God of the Jews. He was not literally saying everyone is God's child. Far from being God's children by nature, here's what Paul says to the Ephesian church. Listen, Ephesians 2 verse 3. Among them, and he's talking about the Gentiles and those who reject God. Among them... We too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. Children of what? Wrath. Okay, so children who deserved punishment. Okay, so those people outside of God in relationship with God don't seem to be thought of as children of God by Paul. So who are the children of God according to Paul then? What do we mean by children of God? Well, certainly we must just be talking about the Jewish people. The Jewish people are God's children. God's the father of the Jewish people. When you read about Jews discussing God as father, oftentimes they talked about God being the father of the Israelite people, that is, father of the nation. Now, God used language of father toward the the, um, Jewish people, but they didn't always reciprocate. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 says, Do we not all have one father? Is it not God who has created us? Remember, this is Malachi talking to the Jewish people. Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane his covenant, the covenant of our fathers? This is Israelite national identity. God is the father of the nation of Israel. This is how most Jews thought of it. But Jesus challenged this notion. Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. Jesus says this, Do not assume that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, your lineage does not make you God's family. Being created by God does not make you his family. Your lineage and who you're descended from does not make you God's family. Recall Jesus having a discussion of parentage with the Pharisees. John chapter 8. Let's look at verse 38 through 44. John chapter 8, 38 through 44. 
Jesus says, I speak of the things which I have seen with my father. Who's Jesus' father? God the Father. This is an easy answer. Who's Jesus' father? God the Father. Okay. I, I speak of the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also, he's talking to the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, you also do the things which you heard from your father. What's Jesus just done? He's made a distinction. My father is not your father. They answered him and said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Now their response is, it would be typical of many in this day and age. We're descendants of Abraham. We are children through Abraham. That means we're the children of promise. We're God's children. And Jesus says, we don't share the same father. Verse 40. You do not do the deeds of Abraham, but as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father, Jesus says. Then they said to him, now remember, these are religious Jewish people. These are Pharisees. They've dedicated their lives to knowing the law and putting the law into practice. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, then you would love me. Oh, wait, I missed one. Verse 41, you are not doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born as a result of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. In other words, we know about your parentage, Jesus. We know that your mother got pregnant in obscure circumstances. We have legitimate fathers. You were born out of wedlock. And the response is, we have one father. Our father is God. Now, ironically, they are talking to the one human being, the one man in flesh who can claim that God is his father. Jesus says this, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came forth from God and I am here. For I have not come even on my own, but he sent me. You see, this is Jesus proceeding from God. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. So see what's happening here. Jesus seems to be saying fatherhood is less about who made you, less about who you can connect your ancestry to than it is about whom you have devoted yourself to, where your allegiance lay, and moreover, the way you're acting. It turns out that this is even how it was portrayed through the prophets. This is not new in Jesus. We cited Malachi earlier saying, hey, are we all not God's kids? Look at Malachi 1.9. This is Malachi rebuking the Israelites. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am the father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my respect? Says the Lord of armies to you. If Jesus calls devoutly religious Jews sons of the devil, these are people who took their religion and Yahweh very seriously, then why would we think that Jesus would consider every human being, including those who want nothing to do with God, as his children? So how then does God become father? What could bring about this relationship? Well, it's not so much of a what, but a whom. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about approaching God as father. According to R.C. Sproul, traditionally when a Jewish child was taught to pray, he was given about 30 to 40-ish appropriate terms of address for God. That is titles you could use when talking to God 
and be okay. Conspicuously absent from that list was one title that we use frequently. You know what it was? Father. It was inappropriate for Jewish people to address God directly in prayer as Father. Sproul actually says that when it comes to personal address with regard to God, praying to God as Father, no Jew specifically addresses God as Father in prayer until around the 10th century A.D., almost a thousand years after Jesus, with one notable exception. And who would that be? Hey, you got the easy answer. Jesus, and then all those who would follow Jesus began addressing God as Father. He is the only begotten of the Father. Isaiah 9, 6, and for unto us, this is Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus was born. For, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son will be given. Or John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only son. You've noticed that word only there before, haven't you? Only. What does only mean? Just the one. Just the one. The only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, that's a reference to Jesus. God, the only Son, who is in the arms of the Father. He has explained Him. Or think of the most, probably the, the most prominent, the most popular piece of religious text in the history of the world. John three sixteen. What's it say? For God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son. Okay, so Jesus is God's only son. Jesus is the legitimate son and heir. So when he prayed, he prays to his father. This was novel. And it would have been weird for most of the Jewish population around him to listen to him having discussions with God as though God were his dad. It would have been uncomfortable. That kind of familiarity certainly would have been seen of as, as blasphemous by many of the Jews who were surrounding Jesus. And if they had prayed that way, perhaps it would have been blasphemous. When we read that Jesus prayed to God as Father, you probably think nothing of it because you, many of you, have been Christians or have been around Christians for much of your life. And when they address God, when we address God, we do so as Father. We do it on the regular. You hear people pray this all the time. When Jesus began praying this way, people weren't praying this way. And so most people would be like, a little too familiar there, don't you think? Aren't you a little uncomfortable saying that? You're kind of making yourself out to be God. A holy God should be terrifying. He should be awesome. The king of the universe. And who am I? I'm a worm. I'm wretched. I'm a sinner. Were I brought into God's presence, I would be destroyed. And yet, Jesus, when he is asked by his disciples, Lord, would you teach us to pray? He starts out with this. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father. Our Father. And so the novelty that Jesus brings in his relationship with God, he bestows on those who follow him. And he says, when you talk to him, you can talk to him. Like I talk to him, you talk to him like this, you address him as father. How did God, the terrifying, become dad? It's not by merit of our creation. It's not by merit of our lineage. So how does God become dad? The answer is adoption. Who in here is adopted? We'll try that again in about another minute here. We had separation because of our sins. 
But in our sins, those things were dealt with on the cross, and that obstacle of our sin was removed. More than that, through Christ, we have, as the Scriptures say over and over again, received adoption. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says it this way. When the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of woman under the law, so that he might redeem, that might buy back those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now you might be thinking, gee, Ben, there's a lot of Jesus the Son in your sermon on God the Father. Yeah, that's going to happen. You know why? Because the only way God becomes Father to you and I is through Jesus the Son. Let's talk about relating to this Father. We started this message by talking about God being awesome, being terrifying, powerful, and fearsome. And that should inspire righteous fear if you're on the wrong side of God. Considering who God is and how much God cares, if you are His enemy, you have every right to be afraid. Even if you respect him, you have right and and really the obligation to have the fear that is due a powerful, powerful father, the most powerful father. But there's a difference between having God looking at you as an enemy and having God standing before you, between you and his enemies. That phrase, my dad can beat up your dad, takes on a whole new meaning when God is your father. God is the perfect Father. I want us to think about this concept of Father. It was given to us by Him to help us relate to Him. Think about Father for a moment. When He says Heavenly Father, a whole host of ideas should emerge based on the word Father. And these should be meditations in our mind as we approach God in prayer on the regular. When we think of our Heavenly Father, we should think as we think of earthly fathers. Strength. Dads open cans. They open jars that are stuck. Dads kill bugs, right? Good dads are strong, but it's not just strength. It's strength under control. Most fathers, if they took an infant, could crush that infant with their hands, but that's not how they behave. They don't just have strength. They have strength under control. It's strength that is mastered. They are not just belligerent bulls ramming through everything, and so is our Heavenly Father. We're intended to think of strength and strength under control. Strength under control, by the way, has a term that is used to describe it in the New Testament. That term is gentleness. And a good dad is gentle. The good father is about regulation and discipline and enforcement. He is a source of order in the household, and so is our heavenly father. The best dad is slow to anger, capable of wrath, but his nature is not one that desires wrath. It's a Desire to protect those whom he loves. One who shields those who belong to him from outside evil, but allows them to suffer the lessons of their own misconduct. That's what good dads do. And so is our Heavenly Father. The Great Father has knowledge and wise counsel. He is the one who tempers passions. 
He controls himself, but he also tempers the passions of others. He is patient and long-suffering, and so is our Heavenly Father. He is the Father who makes a plan, who forges a path, who leads and guides. Good dads know what to do next. Good dads are good leaders. They know what happens next, and so is our Heavenly Father. He's the one who has a plan. When we think of Father, we should think of the expert the craftsman, the problem solver, the one who can fix whatever is broken. And so he is. When we think of Father, we should think of the one who is faithful and dependable and trustworthy, who is always there for you. This Father is the one who does all he does out of love and desire for the very best for his family. And such is our Heavenly Father. You might be listening to that list and thinking, if you're a dad, uh, I'm a less than perfect representative of who God is. And if we asked your families, they'd probably give you an amen on that. Not one of us in this room has been the perfect imitation of our Heavenly Father. And some in this room might have had it worse than others. This is not directly a sermon on fatherhood. But I just want to remind you of why the adversary is so vested in getting men to fumble this role. Apart from explicit revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, one of the best impressions that people ever get of who their heavenly father is comes from the man who lives in their home claiming to be their father. It's important. If you've had a rotten dad, take heart. Dysfunction is a lesson in and of itself. I know this stinks. Um, but pain is an unpleasant but effective teacher. If you can look at your dad and go, well, I know whatever God is, he ain't that. Then put that in practice. Help that shape how you approach God. I know you're not like him. Whatever you are, I know you're not that. We all crave a relationship with the perfect dad. And if that hunger's in your heart, and I know it is, then I've got good news for you. You've got a perfect dad. How should we relate to this father? When we adopted our two younger boys, um, each time the courts asked them if they wanted to be a walker. And Demarion gave us a yes right away, said it to the judge real loud and proud. Colton had to be poked a few times before he said yes. But both said yes. This whole existence, this reality, is a similar courtroom experience. There's a proposition before you, and it's, do you want to be in this family or not? You want to be part of God's family. This is the invitation to you. This is the decision we're all making right now. Will I be my own? Will I just chase myself and my own desires until I fall dead? Or do I turn away from myself and go, I want to be in your family. I want to know what it is to be your son and I want to please you, God. How do we relate to God? Some recommendations. Daily, choose the father that is choosing you. You've been adopted. He wants to adopt you. Choose the Father who is choosing you. Every single day. Lord, I want to be yours today. Lord, I want to choose you today. Some of us did not take Jesus' instruction on prayer very seriously. We're still approaching the Father as merely a judge or an exalted king or the all-powerful deity. And don't mistake me, he is all of those things. But he's more than that to us. He's not just judge. He's not just King of kings and Lord of lords. He's not just the maker, shaper, and sustainer of the cosmos. He's also dad. And that changes everything about how you approach him. You need not have fear and terror of dad. 
as Hebrews 10, 19 says, we can enter boldly into his presence. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 15 through 17. Here's Paul describing this relationship. He says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies within our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we might also be glorified with him. You've heard that term Abba before. What does it mean? Father, it means daddy is the best translation. Abba is what a, um, an, an Aramaic child would have called their daddy. By him we cry out, Abba. It's not even a formal dad, it's daddy. What's being said to us is though we serve an awesome God, though he is almighty and imposing, whatever else he is, he is also daddy. And that should drown you in confidence. If God is for us, who can be against us? Because of the adoption we have through Christ Jesus, we can enter boldly before the throne of grace. Choose the Father who's choosing you. Second, give the Father respect. Occasionally, one of my kids will call me bro or dude. <laughs> now, I'm pretty laid back as a general rule, so like I, I get why that kind of slips out periodically, but I'm more than that. I'm dad, and there's a difference, right? I'm not a playground chum. There is a difference of authority and submission. And, and I, I don't mind if my kids call me dad or informal in that way. You ever heard those kids who like call their parents by their first name? Like it's so demeaning and so disrespectful, right? But I, I want my kids to come to me by referencing the relationship. I love that they enter into the relationship that way. I'm not merely bro. I'm not dude. I'm dad. Respecting God means that you approach him in the right way. You bring that, that relationship into the conversation. When you go to God in prayer, when you say, Father, don't just flippantly say it, but think about what you're saying. Do you realize what a privilege it is? How amazing it is to address him as dad. Respecting God means you reserve a special place in your mind in thinking for God that you make honoring God a priority. Respecting God means you don't let disrespect for him go unanswered. If you were standing in a room with somebody and they started ripping your physical father apart, just demeaning and diminishing your father, would you stand there and say nothing? That's just an earthly dad. Is our heavenly father less valuable? Now you might be thinking, okay, we're going to take notes here. Ben said, punch people in the mouth who blaspheme God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that. But, but you might want to say something. I mean, there's souls still at stake, right? And so just letting that fly means you don't care. You either don't care about God or you don't care about their soul. Either way, you're not caring in the right way. How about this one? Somebody blasphemes God in your presence. How about something like this? You know, that's my dad you're talking about, right? Or maybe you want to jumpstart their thinking process. You could say something like this. If you knew that God exists, would you say what you just said? Or how about this one? If there is no God, your words are absolutely empty and meaningless. But if there is a God, you're drawing condemnation on yourself by what you're saying. Choose the Father who's choosing you. Give the Father the respect that is due Him. Thirdly, approach the Father for counsel. 
When you're having a family matter, you have a matter in the home or in the heart, invite God into your life to help you deal with it. Speak to Him. Call out to Him. Ask Him for intervention. When the family is being attacked from the outside, take it to the Father. If you are suffering on the inside, go. Carry it to the Father. When you don't understand, seek wisdom from the Father. Ask for training. What good dad doesn't love it when a kid shows up and goes, Dad, I need to know how. Or Dad, can you show me? Or Dad, can you help me understand? So does our Heavenly Father love it when we do the same. Choose the Father who is choosing you. Give the Father respect. Approach the Father for counsel. Fourthly, desire to please Him. Having a father taught me a great deal about being a father. I had a good one. Having a father taught me a great deal about being a father. And being a father has taught me a great deal about having a father. That's kind of like one of those Bilbo Baggins flips. So let me, let me say that again. Having a father taught me a great deal about being a father. And being a father taught me a great deal about having a father. I sat in meditation on this this past week, and it occurred to me there is a strong parallel between heavenly fathers and earthly fathers that has to do with approval. There's something very satisfying about hearing your dad say that he's proud of you. I hope you've had that experience. Um, I get it on the regular from my old man. makes a difference. Like, it's something you want to hear. There's something in the human heart that cries out, that desires to hear something like that, to have that approval from your father. And I think it's natural to us in many senses, but in one sense, because there is a spirit within you that is crying out to the God of the universe saying, I want you to be proud of me. I want you to have pride in what I'm doing. I want you to feel my accomplishment and say, you're doing well. I've experienced that. But I've experienced it from the other end too. I've witnessed this relationship as a father looking at kids. There is something so heartwarming, something so amazing about seeing a child who genuinely wants to please you as a father. Who looks at you and says, I want you to be proud of me. Who does the things that they don't want to do because they know it will make you proud. Do you know what it's like as a father? Some of you dads in this room know exactly what I'm speaking about. Where you see your kids acting that way. What a storm of just passion and love for your children that raises inside of you when you see them setting themselves aside and saying, I want your will to be done. I think it's by design. God created this relationship so we could understand him from this side and understand his perspective from that side. God genuinely wants a situation where we desire to please him. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. The prophet Hanani is speaking, and he says this. The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth so that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. God is searching earth going, where can I find one of these kids that just loves me? In conclusion today, God the Father is the source. God the Father is the King. God the Father is almighty and all-knowing, but God the Father is also Daddy. Let's go to our Father in prayer. Our Lord and God, I thank you for establishing this relationship. From our end of things, we couldn't have made it happen, and you showed up in space-time history. You died on the cross. You took the weight of sin upon yourself and removed the separation that we might be adopted and become heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. And for that, we give you eternal gratitude, Lord. We love you. We praise you for all that you are and do. Holy Father, it's in your name we pray.
Good morning. Some announcements, and then we'll be on our way. First off, uh, this is not all of the announcements, even though there are a number of them. So feel free to consult the back of your um, sermon notes or, or online, and you can see more of them. First off, communication cards. If you would like to get connected with the church, share prayer requests, share your information, uh, you can get connected through that. First-time visitors, welcome. There's a, a book, a gift for you on the way out. There's a book on heaven you're welcome to grab and, and take with you. Uh, also, you can fill out the I'm New Here form on the iPads or scan the QR code. Uh, what does QR mean? Quick response, apparently. I didn't know that either. I learned something. Um, if you'd like to get on the emailing list, receive the newsletter, sign up on the iPads. Offering is right between the double doors. Uh, as, as is often said, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. We've been very cheerful lately. Uh, you guys have been wonderful in giving as we have the building expansion going on. Uh, so you're encouraged to continue partaking in that. Women of Joy will be meeting this Wednesday, August 16th from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., at who else? The Shanderskis for poolside fellowship and swimming. Uh, lunch is provided, but please RSVP so they know how much food to provide. My guess is either way, she'll prepare too much because she's a wonderful person. All right. Uh, all church baby shower Saturday, August 26th at 2 p.m. here at CFLM for Lindsay and Micah Henneke. See Amy Whitehead for any questions. Men's retreat. Sorry, I felt like I had to say that more deeply. Uh, our first men's retreat is coming up on October 6th and 7th. We will leave here Friday afternoon and spend the next 24 hours at Agape Wilderness Retreat Center in Bedford, Kentucky. It's where we go with the youth. And so if you're curious about going, uh, I'll let you know the beds are good and the food is better. So you should consider attending. Uh, and so the cost is 90 bucks. It covers lodging and three meals. Our theme is Becoming a Godly Man for Yourself, Your Family, and Your Lord. Sign up on the iPads or online. You can see Jeff Martin or Pete Overbaker if you have any questions. Strides for Hope. This is the Life Forward 5K Walk and Run on Saturday, September 9th at 9 a.m. at Christ Church at Mason. Uh, Life Forward helps women and their families to make life-affirming decisions through God's love. Join our CFLM team as a participant or volunteer. Many of us are already signed up. Please join us. You can sign up online, or and you can see Jackie and Andy Sobolski if you have any questions. And finally, back-to-school prayer buddies have been uh, arranged, so or be, are being arranged. So if you'd like to pair, we would like to pair our CFLM students, that's elementary through college, with a prayer buddy who will pray for them by name for the 2023-2024 school year. Uh, we recognize that going into the school year, it's, things are getting crazy out in our world, and we want to, to really support um, all students in prayer and let them know that they are loved and supported in prayer each and every day, every week. And so weekly prayer prompts will be sent out. Uh, you can sign up on the iPads. There's two sign-ups. One is as a student, uh, and so parents, you'll need to probably help your kids with that, or as, a, as somebody to be praying for the kids. So you can sign up back there. We just want to bathe our students in prayer as they are going back out uh, into the schools. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we'll be out. Heavenly Father, how good, how wonderful, how incredible you are. Lord, as we go forth from here, uh, let us do so in such a way that we are excited and joyful to do your will. Lord, let us not take for granted uh, the gift of your Son, as it is through him that we can come to you with confidence. It is through him that we can even call you Father. 
Oh, Lord, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.